Matthew chapter 7, 7 to 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Well, if you have your Bibles, open them or turn them on to Matthew chapter 7. That's where we're going to camp out this morning. I think it would be helpful if you can follow along and see uh, how it is that I'm making the case that I'm going to make this morning. We, uh, we hit pause last week, obviously on Easter. We hit pause from our series on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount to focus on the resurrection. And so this week we're jumping back into that series that Lord willing, we will finish next week. We'll finish the Sermon on the Mount and then we will spend the summer in the book of Joshua, the Old Testament book of Joshua. So as you're turning to Matthew 7, you know, there are, there are people out there who really attack the Sermon on the Mount. And they would say things like, you know, there's no way that Jesus really preached this sermon. Because this sermon, it feels like such a hodgepodge of teachings, just random collections brought together. And this is not the way that Jesus would have taught, so it can't possibly be accurate. I obviously disagree with that. And first, I disagree with that because who are we to say how Jesus should teach? You know, if Jesus wants to teach in a parable-like or or, or a... uh, a proverb-like way where he takes various things and puts them together, then Jesus can teach however Jesus wants to teach. But secondly, I really do think there's a flow to what Jesus is saying here. Because if you've been with us through this series, or if you just know the Sermon on the Mount well, you know that Jesus has said some very hard things. Jesus said, no one will enter my kingdom unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus says, I don't want you to love your materialistic possessions. I want you to love your enemies. He says, I want you to judge yourself more harshly than you judge others. All right, these are really hard teachings. (laughs) So we hear Jesus saying these things, and if we're really listening, we're gonna ask, I hear you, Jesus, but how in the world can I actually accomplish this? (laughs) And the answer is you can't on your own. You're going to need God's help. So it seems very logical to me that in the flow of Jesus' sermon, he would arrive at a point after teaching some very hard things where he would say, ask, ask, and you will receive. You're not on your own here. Ask, seek, and knock. And that's where we are in Jesus' sermon. When uh, Angela and I were newly married, we went. To, we were members of a very charismatic Pentecostal church. There, there was literally not a single Protestant church in our entire city. So we had to go 20 minutes down the road, or more precisely, 20 minutes down the railroad tracks, to the next town, 
And the only, church, the only Protestant church in that town was this charismatic uh, Pentecostal church. And while, yes, I, I disagreed with elements of their doctrine, we were very thankful for our years there. Angela and I actually, uh, we served as the youth directors for a season in that church. Um, and, and we left that church deeply knowing two things. We knew that that church had loved us well. They loved us. I mean, whenever it is that we needed something, they provided it. If we needed just cultural help, we, I mean, there was a season we didn't know how to mail an envelope back home. And they would go with us to the post office. They would, whatever we needed, they would help us culturally. They would help us if we just wanted to learn how to cook something, how, what these measurement differences were. They were there with us through the little things. They were there with us through the big things. Angela was in the hospital once over there. They came, they visited. They wanted to do whatever they could to serve us to love us we're very thankful for that church and the way that they loved us so we left believing deeply that they loved us but we also left believing deeply that they were a praying church they were really a praying church you know I was in my early 20s trying to figure out you know all my doctrine what I believed about the Bible and you know, if, if I wanted to learn good doctrine, if I wanted to read good books and listen to good sermons, probably I was listening or reading to Presbyterians, <laughs> all right? But if I really needed prayer, it was my Pentecostal brothers and sisters that I wanted on my side. You know, if, if health was an issue or if we had somebody we were sharing the gospel with and we wanted somebody to plead with the Lord for the salvation of that young man or young woman, the Pentecostals were the ones that we went to because we knew that they weren't afraid to ask. They weren't afraid to ask. They weren't afraid to plead. And among us, you know, more reformed types, we're really good at praying, thy will be done. But when it comes to asking boldly and making the kinds of requests that I think Jesus is, is calling us to make in this passage, that's not our strong suit. Because Jesus says, in the clearest of possible ways, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So what in the world does that mean? That's what I wanna answer this morning. And I, and I wanna answer that question. What does this passage mean by, by doing three things? By talking about, from this passage, how is it that we should be praying? What is it that we should be asking? And who it is that we're asking? So what should we be asking? How should we be asking? What we should be asking? And who it is that we're asking? If we understand the answer to those three things, we will know what Jesus means when he says, ask and you shall receive. All right, so first, how is it that we are to ask? The best one word answer that I can think of to sum up the way that we should be asking God for things is boldly. We should be asking God boldly for the things that we need. And Jesus in this passage, he uses three words, ask, seek, and knock. And, and I think he's very intentionally using words that communicate an escalation in boldness. Because asking, seeking, and knocking, those are, those are three very different things. You know, when you ask, you're, you, I, it conjures up in my mind a polite request. 
You know, there's respect, there's humility, there's honor, the way that we would ask to be excused from the table. Maybe we ask somebody for prayer. We might ask somebody, please pass the salt. You know, that's, there's not a lot of force in the word ask. But then you go to the word seek, all right? And it steps it up a little bit. I had a a really good friend in college who is now a very well-known attorney in the state of Florida. And he wanted a very specific internship to launch him into this world. And he wanted to ask for that internship, but he couldn't even gain access to the other very, at the time, the very famous uh, lawyer that he needed to ask. And because he couldn't ask, he decided he was going to seek. And so he found out that one week, this very well-known lawyer in Florida was in Tallahassee. And he had arrived in Tallahassee by way of his own personal jet. So my friend decided he was going to be on that jet, on the tarmac, when this guy goes back to his jet. And he did it. (laughs) This is pre-9-11. But he was able to get on his personal jet. And when this very famous person returned to his jet, there was my friend. And my friend had about 30 seconds to make his case. And because the owner of the jet was so impressed at the way my friend sought him, he got the internship. But Jesus doesn't stop at seeking. Jesus then ramps it up to knocking. I mean, when you knock on a door, when you're not, not just a polite, are you there knock, but a kind of an, I want something knock. You know, you're, you're throwing all humility and, and maybe a lot of respect out the window. You know, I, I live with four people who feel a lot of freedom to knock on the outside door, on the bedroom door, on the bathroom door. They're unashamed to get in where it is that they want to get. When, when we knock on a door, again, not in a polite way, and I think Jesus is, and I'll make my case through Luke as we go, on an I need this thing kind of way, we're putting everything on the line. We're putting all our pride out the window. Because there's something that we desperately need. And we're going to make our case for that thing. Now, I am going to provide some caveats in a minute to what it is that we should be asking for. But I don't want to do that yet. I want the weight of ask and you will receive to sit with us. Because that's the thrust of the passage. I mean, yes, there are some some things we need to understand. But Jesus doesn't provide many of those things here he simply says ask seek knock and as the weight of that sits on us I want us to ask ourselves why is it that we don't always ask seek and knock you know what stands in between us and and making requests the way that Jesus is clearly calling us to request things so I was I thought this week what are (laughs) What are the things that stand between me and that kind of prayer life? And I came up very quickly with five things. (laughs) And hopefully, I'm not on an island here. I I think that many of these five things will connect with many of you. But here are at least five barriers that I see that stand in in between us and going to God the way that he is communicating that we should be going to him with our requests. And so the first is simple. The first is that we don't believe he really cares. I mean, I know I'm tempted to think, gosh, in, the, in, the, in light of all the requests that God gets in, in an hour, 
and how, how important so many of those requests might be. You know, what, what makes my little bitty request so important? Yeah, I can almost at sometimes feel rude for bothering God with, with this little thing when I know the bigger things in this church, let alone the whole world that are going up to him. But when we start wondering, does God really care about a request? What we're not understanding is how valuable we are to God. Because God, he isn't taking requests based on, you know, importance. You know, well, all right, Jim's isn't that important, so I'm, I'm going to get these important things out of the way, and if I have enough time left in my day, we'll, we'll see about that. That's not how God looks at our requests. God is answering requests from us not based on urgency or importance, but based on value. These requests that are coming from his children. We've already seen Jesus in this sermon say that, you know, he, he calls us to look at the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. Look how beautiful they are. Look how well taken care of they are. Do you not know that you're of infinitely more valuable, infinitely more value than they are? Peter, in 1 Peter 5, chapter 7 says, cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. So that's the first reason that I think we don't pray the way we should. The second reason we don't pray is because we can think it's not necessary. And often we can hide this under the banner of a big view of God. You know, we have a big view of God. And there are, there are streams of Christian and non-Christian thought that would say, you know, God is so big, he's so sovereign, he's gonna do whatever it is that he wants anyway. So really our prayers don't matter. Really our prayers are unnecessary. And to do that not only demeans the value that God has given us, but it's also to believe that is a very low view of the word of God. Because that's not what God says. God does say pray. He does say I've ordained things in a certain way. The way that I want to bring things about is through your prayers. It has a low view of passages like James 4.2, where James says, you do not have because why? You do not ask. So this seems to communicate that our prayers are necessary in some way. That is the way that God has designed things to work. Third reason, I don't think we pray the way that Jesus wants us to pray is because if we're honest, we're scared. We're scared to pray this way because what happens if we don't get the answer for the thing that we're praying for? You know, I, I mean, we, if we ask for something really important and really dear to us and it doesn't happen, what is that gonna do to our faith? What is that gonna do to us if we have a fragile faith? Wouldn't it be safer just to not ask at all than to ask boldly and risk having that thing not happen? Some of you have kids and grandkids and you've seen them come home from a hard day of school. Maybe they were harassed or bullied on the playground Maybe they lost something really important to them and we know that what we should do in that moment is get down and pray boldly with them that God would provide their friends, that he would restore whatever's lost. But how many of you have thought, gosh, that's, that's a really specific prayer to be praying with a six-year-old. <laughs> Wouldn't it be better if we didn't pray at all? 
Wouldn't, I mean, potentially, are we providing an environment where more harm can be done if we pray for something and we don't see it happen with our child? But I think the bigger harm will be done when we don't model the kind of prayer that Jesus is calling us to model to our children. Because it isn't our job to decide what tasks God is up for and what tasks God isn't up for. Our job is simply to ask. So we put aside any fear of what might happen if the answer is no, and we're going to deal with no's in a minute. And we go to God and we ask specifically, whether it's for us or in front of our children. All right, fourth reason. I don't think that we pray the way that we should is time. I don't have enough time. I'm too busy to pray the way that Jesus is calling us to pray. Well, Martin Luther has this really famous quote. When he, during the height of the Reformation, when things were getting very, very busy for him, he wrote that I can no longer get along a single day without at least two hours of prayer. So the busier Martin Luther got, the more prayer that he brought into his life. And the truth is for all of us, and Dan said something very similar when he was up here, we make time for the things that we value. You know, if it's valuable to us, we're going to find time. It may require cutting a little bit of device time. It may require shedding a little Netflix time. It may cost us a little bit of sleep. But if it's valuable to us, we are going to find a way. And it's not like Jesus is requiring a three-point sermon in our prayer here. Uh, you know, Jesus has said, I don't want your babbling. I don't want your repetition. I don't want your vain, your vain repetition. I just want you to come to me and make your requests. So time should not be a reason that we don't come to God and pray the way that we should, the way that he's calling us to pray. And then the fifth and last reason that I don't think we pray the way that Jesus wants us to pray is because of our own sin. When we have unconfessed sin in our life, it affects the way that we pray. I mean, it's just, it's, it's logical, right? I mean, if, we, if we're not trusting God in our actions, you know, we know we're not trusting him in our actions, then maybe at a conscious level, we're gonna be ashamed to go to him. Maybe at a subconscious level, we know we're not trusting him here, so we're beginning to not trust him over here. We don't trust him in our actions, so we don't trust him in our prayer. And I'm not saying that God doesn't work. He can't work when we're in sin. I'm saying we doubt more when we're in sin. And so as a result, we don't go to him with the kinds of bold requests that Jesus wants us to come to him with. First John 3 says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Those are the five reasons, I think, five of the reasons that we don't go to God. We don't make the kinds of requests that Jesus is calling us to make. And before I move on, I I do want to say one thing to my dear Pentecostal brothers and sisters. (laughs) I want to push on one, one part of the way that they do pray. There is this idea among, and I, and I mean this, my dear friends in this camp, that when we pray, we are, in essence, enabling God to do something. So if we don't pray, then God, God either won't or can't act 
You know, it, something about our prayer that merits his response or that allows a response. And so what happens is when we believe that, that God can't do something unless we pray, then there begins to be this guilt over us <laughs> because we know at a, at a deep level that every minute I'm not praying and, and sh- you know, none of us would ever feel like we pray enough. Every minute I'm not praying is essentially a minute that God's off the clock. And so this, this guilt, this cloud begins to come into their prayer life that I think they could be freed from. If we remember in the sermon that Jesus says it's that God not only knows about everything that we would bring to him, if we know about it, it's because he brought it to us. So that's where I would push on my Pentecostal brothers and sisters. God already knows the request. He made it known to us. So when we go to him, we should go to him without any guilt over our heads or feeling like we're enabling God to work in some way, but we should go with joy that we get to go to God the Father. And we saw this a few months ago when we looked back at Adam, when God wanted to give him a companion, he didn't just give him Eve. What did he do before he gave him Eve? He had him name all the animals. Because naming the animals was the way that God was going to show Adam that he needed Eve. He, he named these animals and he saw that every animal had a companion. Then he began to feel his need for a companion. Again, a need that God already said that he knew that he needed. So he showed him his need. Then Adam said, where's my companion? And God gave it to him. And I think understanding this, it changes the whole way that we go about asking for everything. It, it, it eliminates guilt from the equation. And I love John Calvin, the way, that, the way that he addresses it. He says, nothing is better adapted to be an encouragement to our prayer than a full conviction that we will be heard. So it goes from guilt to motivation, encouragement. We will be heard. God knows about this. He wants it. The reason that we even, know, we even have this desire is because he's made it known to us. And in every aspect of our lives, we are more motivated to go and make a request from somebody who we think is going to receive that request well. You know, that's true of our spouse. It's true of our parents. It's true of our children. It's true of our employer. And it's certainly true of our God. The more we believe we are going to be heard, the more boldly we're going to make our requests. So that's how we should be asking. Now we get to ask, what is it that we should ask? What is it that we should be asking, seeking, and knocking for? Is it absolutely anything? Well, no. Jesus, he qualifies what we're supposed to ask, seek, and knock for as quote-unquote good things. We're supposed to go to the Father and ask for good things. Now, knowing that I was going to preach on this text this, this Sunday, I did a little experiment at my dinner table this week. I asked my kids if I could and would give you anything you want, what would you, what would you request? What would you want me to give you? And that list included eating chocolate all day long, a new Tesla, a gun, a baby lamb that would sleep in the bed of that child, a horse that that child could ride every day, 
a helicopter that that child would pilot, like now, a flamethrower, and a robot with an incinerator inside of it. And so my question is, would it be a good thing for me to give my kids absolutely anything that they requested? Okay, unless you're some sort of arson here this morning, the answer is absolutely not. It would be horrible if my children got everything their hearts desired, and it would be horrible for us as well. So this isn't, Jesus's call isn't a call for us to get absolutely anything we want. It's a call to get these good things. I mean, imagine if all of us had gotten married to the very first person that we prayed, God, could I marry this person? I I think for most of us, that would not have worked out very well. Imagine if God had answered all our, you know, middle school and high school prayers of fame and wealth and, you know, professional sports. I I don't think that would have gone well for 99.9% of us. God is not some cosmic vending machine, you know, where, where you push a button and a, a certain prayer answer comes out. He's not this genie that we just, we just rub and we get, you know, we get whatever answers we want. And we should be really thankful that God's not a genie in a bottle. Because first of all, I've never seen one movie where that actually went well. And I, and I think that, you know, everybody who makes these kind of movies is on to something. Because if we look at God and, and our requests like a genie in the bottle, then we are in essence putting our place, put, in, a, in essence putting ourselves in place of God. I mean, that's what we're doing. We're saying we know best. And that might be fun for like 30 seconds until we realize that we don't know the bigger picture. We don't know how all of our requests are gonna affect other people, how they're gonna affect future generations. We're gonna see quickly the depths of our own selfish motives. We're gonna realize that we sleep and we're off the clock a third of the day. And it will not be long before we wanna give that genie back because we don't want to be God. We're insufficient to be God. And so we don't want to have that kind of view of God. So what are these good things? How do we define a good thing? I define a good thing as something that glorifies God and conforms us more into the image of his son. That qualifies as a good thing in in its most general possible definition a good thing is something that glorifies God and conforms us more into the image of his son and in Luke's version of this same passage he says how much more will the heavenly father give the holy spirit to those who ask and I think that makes a lot of sense because it's the holy spirit who conforms us who shapes our minds into more of the mind of Christ and it's the Holy Spirit who's going to give us understanding of what it is these good things are that we should be requesting so if these are good things you know how is it that we can get better at knowing good things and requesting good things all right I've got two thoughts if you want to be better at knowing good things the good things to be to pray for First, is does it align with scripture? 
Does it align with scripture? Because God has laid out a lot of his thoughts, his desires in scripture. And if it's in scripture, then we can know this is a good thing. This is what you desire. And if we have scriptural evidence that this is something that God desires, then we can go to him and we can ask, we can seek, we can knock, we can plead, and we can argue with God that this thing should happen. And I know that some of you are sitting here and you're thinking this feels really awkward to argue with the God of the universe. But I think that's what Jesus is encouraging us to do. And I love this Charles Spurgeon quote talking about arguing with God. He says, the best prayers I have ever heard in our prayer meetings have been those which have been fullest of argument. Sometimes my soul has been fairly melted down where I have listened to the brethren who have come before God feeling the mercy to be really needed and that they must have it. For they first pleaded with God to give it for this reason and then a second reason and then for a third reason and then for a fourth and a fifth until they have awakened the fervency of the entire assembly. There is a place to plead and argue with God if we know that it's his will. And the only things that we know for sure are his will is what's in scripture. There's another pastor, again, from England in the 19th century, not Charles Spurgeon, but George Mueller. Some of you have heard of George Mueller, and he, was no, he became very well known because of the crazy answers that he would receive for his prayers. And, and of all the, the crazy answers that he received in his prayers, uh, the most well-known surrounded orphans. In England in that day, the entire country of England could only care for about 3,600 orphans at a time. Well, you had twice that number of kids eight and under incarcerated because they'd gotten in trouble. So you had only 3,600 in prison, in, in orphans. You had countless kids running all over the place and then almost twice that amount in prison. So that broke George Mueller's heart and he began to pray. And through the course of his ministry, he was able to care for over 10,000 orphans. And he did that as he preached three times a week and he never once asked anybody for money. He had no money. So how did he accomplish that? By praying. He would pray, but he was known before he would pray a single thing to search scripture, sometimes for hours, looking for proof that this is God's will. And then he would spend time on his knees arguing, I know this is your will. He would seek, he would ask, and he would knock that God would provide the money that he needed to care for these orphans. And like literally as he's praying for a very specific amount of money, somebody would walk in the doors with that exact amount of money. It was incredible to see the way that Charles Spurgeon and George Mueller knew to argue with God, but they did it on God's terms, not their own terms. So, do you have scriptural backing for your prayers? Do you know enough scripture to be even able to answer that question? That's a really important piece of knowing how to ask for these good things. Secondly, we ask for good things. We're better at asking for good things when we're in community with other believers. C.S. Lewis had, uh, he had this group of three friends. 
well, there was three of them. It was C.S. Lewis and two friends. They were Jack, so Jack was C.S. Lewis. Then he had a friend named Ronald and a friend named Charles. And when Charles died, C.S. Lewis said, you know, I, when Charles died, I thought that I would have more of Ronald, but I soon realized that I actually had less. And he explains it like this. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, now that Charles is away, I have less. And in the same way, when we're together, we have more of God. When we're together, we see more of God. We understand more of God. We're more quickly able to understand what are these good things that we're supposed to seek God individually and corporately for. So it's important that we're together, that we're together in church, that we're together in equipping hour, that we're together in community group and in each other's homes, that we're praying together, that we're fellowshipping together, that we're studying the Bible together. We just finished our first week of Discover OGC. As Dan said, it's not too late to plug in. It's important that you have a church family. It doesn't have to be this church, but you need to have a church family. And if you sit in here and you don't have one, I would love for you to join us in Discover OGC next week and see if this might be the place that God's calling you to make a church family. But we need to be in community because in community, we're more able to know a good thing and to seek God for that good thing. All right. Before I move on, I want to I wanna address a very specific type of person here. I could imagine that there are people here saying, I hear you, Jim, but it has seemed for years now like a good thing that my child come to faith, and that has not happened yet. It seems like a good thing that I would have children, and God has, God has not had that happen yet. It seems like a good thing that my health would continue, that I would be able to to take care of my family and provide for my family and continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere that I am. But God doesn't seem to be doing that thing. So what do you say to that, Jim? And if that's you, I want to first say how sorry I am that that's the season that you're in. How gut-wrenching that has to be. And if that's you, I want you to hear two very specific things from me this morning. The first is do not stop asking. Do not stop asking. Do not give up. Continue to ask until there is literally nothing left to ask for. Because that's what Jesus is saying in ask, seek, and knock. It's never give up. Continue to seek the Lord. And because I know that in our midst we have more health issues than, than we have for some time in our body. I want to tell you that our health is a good thing that we can come and ask the Lord for. Now, it's not a guarantee because we know that every single one of us will lose our health at the end of this life. Every one of us. But it is a good thing. You know, you see all over the New Testament, you know, there, most of the New Testament doesn't even doesn't just teach that we should pray for our health. It just assumes that it's going on. It assumes that the, that the elders are praying for these kinds of things. I've seen crazy things happen. One of my very best friends in Oxford, Mississippi, 
When his second child was really young, he was diagnosed with leukemia. He was, he was tested seven different times by different doctors. And every one of them confirmed he has leukemia. And a group of people came over his child, prayed for that child. They went back to the doctor and it was gone. We can pray until there is nothing left to pray for that God would sustain us in our health. And if that's the season you're in, I want to encourage you to continue to do it. We pray until God answers that prayer or he clearly says no. So that's the first encouragement I have. The second one is to trust God in the no's. Trust God in the no's. David prayed for his child with Bathsheba to live and God said no. Paul prayed for the thorn to be removed from his side and God said no. Jesus prayed for the cup of God's wrath to be removed from him and God said no. There are times that God says no because there's a greater good that we just don't have the capacity to understand or see in this life. And he asks us to trust him in the no's. There's, there's a, a lady named Joni Erickson Tata that I think would be a familiar name to many of you in this room. She is in her late 60s now. When she was 17 years old, she had a horrible diving accident that left her paralyzed from the neck down. And I heard this quote from Joni Erickson Tata at the Gospel Coalition a few weeks ago. And I think it, she does a great job of allowing us to see how it is that she processes the greater good in her life in light of being paralyzed now for five decades. She says, I always say that in a way, I hope I can take my wheelchair to heaven with me. I know that it's not biblically correct, but if I were able I would have my wheelchair go up in heaven right next to me when God gives me my brand new glorified body. And when I turn to Jesus and say, then I will turn to Jesus and I will say, Lord, do you see that wheelchair right there? Well, you were right when you said that there would be trouble in this world because that wheelchair was a lot of trouble. But Jesus, the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. The harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. So thank you for what you did in my life through that wheelchair. And now you can send that wheelchair to hell if you want. (laughs) I've really appreciated her ministry over the years. The way that she processes truly hard circumstances. Because she understands something very specific to be able to do that. Because we're not just asked to bring our requests. We're not just asked to, we're not just called to ask and to seek and to knock. We are called to trust God when the answer is no. And we can't do that unless we really understand who it is that we're praying to. And so that's how I want to finish up our time. I want to look at who it is that we're making these kinds of requests to. In short, (laughs) We are praying to a good father. We pray to a good father. And we have to understand this to be able to appreciate what it is that Jesus is saying here. You know, I look out in this room and I see a lot of fathers. I see fathers. I see soon-to-be fathers in this room. And I know all of us, we want to give really good gifts to our children. 
If our children ask for bread, we're not going to give them stone. If our children ask for fish to eat, we're not going to give them a serpent. You know, in more modern language, you know, I think if our children ask us for Chick-fil-A, we're not going to give them a three-day-old gas station taquito. (laughs) If our kids want a homemade meatloaf, we're not going to give them cafeteria mystery meat. That's for you 90s kids out there. And do you know what Jesus calls us fathers in this room by comparison? Evil. We're evil and we know how to give our kids good gifts. How much more our father in heaven? That's who we're making these requests from. And I know I've, I've given a, kind of a, a number of kid analogies this week. So maybe next week I'll spare you all kid analogies. But I'm gonna make one more. I believe that the best age when, you know, of child rearing is four. I remember saying this with Turner and then Collins and then Ivy and now I've got my last four-year-old in my house and I'm hanging on. It is such a sweet age. They can go to the bathroom themselves, they can wipe themselves, they can bathe themselves, they can dress themselves, but they haven't lost all the cuteness. And, and I am still the hero in their life. You know, all my other kids are wondering if I can do anything right. He thinks I can do everything right. And one of the great joys of my life right now is when my four-year-old wakes up, he runs to me, he hugs me, he says, good morning, daddy. He tells me what he dreamed about, which is always interesting. (laughs) And then he looks at me and says, where's my breakfast? And that doesn't bother me in the least because I know he needs breakfast and I so enjoy him coming to me in the morning and loving me and asking me for anything. I wanna give him breakfast even if he's out of bed earlier than he should be. And to me this week, I've thought about that. And that is a good picture of the the father to whom we are making requests. And I'm evil. So however much joy I have in granting my four-year-old his request for breakfast in the morning, our father in heaven has infinitely more joy and patience and grace for every kind of request that we're going to make in this room. So the core motivation in us making requests for our father, it's not a formula, it's the character of our father. So again, in Luke's version of this passage, he compares our requests to a neighbor. He says, you're like a man who receives guests in the middle of the night and you need to feed these guests so you go to your neighbor in in search of bread and your neighbor's asleep and his door's knocked so you pound on the door, you continue knocking and eventually that neighbor opens the door. And every commentary I read, not every, almost every commentary I read says the emphasis there in Luke's passage is on persistence. You know, this man persisted and got what he wanted and you persist and you'll get what you wanted. And maybe that's true, but I actually think Jesus is doing something else. I think he's saying, look at this selfish neighbor. He obliged. How much more is your God in heaven, your father in heaven going to oblige when you make a request? I think he's comparing the character of the neighbor to the character of the father. Because when we know who it is that we're making requests from, we're gonna be more likely to ask, more likely to seek, and more likely to knock. And you know how we know more than any other way that we're asking a good father 
is because our Trinitarian God came here in the form of Jesus Christ so that we could even ask in the first place. He came here and he took on the wrath that we deserved for all of our sinful life. And he gave us all the righteousness that he merited in his perfect life. And in doing that, we received the forgiveness of our sins and we now have access to the Father. We have access to the new kingdom and we are guaranteed a spot with him forever away from sin in his kingdom. That's how we know that our God is good. But we cannot ask, we cannot seek, and we cannot knock unless we believe. So if you're here today and you don't believe in Jesus Christ, there's access that you could have that you do not have today. But today could be the day that that access becomes yours. That you can ask and you can seek and you can knock on the door of that good, good Father in heaven. And if you are a believer here today, I want to finish by asking you, what is it that you're asking for? What is it that you're seeking for? What is it that you're knocking for? I'll tell you what I am. One of the things. I am praying daily that God would use this church to both strengthen and expand his kingdom. That God would use this church to both strengthen and expand his kingdom. And, and there's a lot in that prayer. That is not a small prayer. That means that we would be theologically sound and evangelistic. All right? And I see lots of churches that are neither. I see a good handful of churches that are one of the two. And I see almost no churches that are both. You know, there's this idea in our culture that you have your fluffy evangelistic churches. They're going to they're gonna win people into the kingdom and then there'll come a time they reach a certain amount of maturity and they're going to move over to a theologically sound church. But that theologically sound church is not going to see a lot of conversions because it's this kind of church and not that kind of church. Now, I want to reject that idea. I want to be a church that's both because that's what Jesus is calling our church to be. That's what he wants us to be, to be churches through whom... The kingdom is both expanded and strengthened. And I know that if this is a prayer that God answers, it's going to require a whole lot of work on the part of every one of us. But that's why we're here. And I believe deeply that this is a good thing. I have scriptural proof all over the place that God wants us to be a church that is expanding his kingdom and strengthening his kingdom. And so I want to ask, I want to seek, and I want to knock boldly, not just by myself, but as an entire congregation. Because if that is prayed, and I believe deeply that will be answered, then we will see something truly special happen at this church. So what is it that you're asking, that you're seeking, and you're knocking for? Let's pray. God, I come before you as someone who has absolutely grown complacent in the, the requests that I make of you. All of those five reasons that people don't pray, I'm guilty of all of them. And I, I want to repent of those things. I want 
all of us in this room to be able to repent of the reasons that we don't ask, seek, and knock boldly. And I want us to do it. And then I want us to enjoy going to you the way a child goes to a good father. And I want to pray that we will pray, that we will ask for those good things, that you will answer those good things, and that we will see those good things happen, that we will be encouraged and that we will be a church through whom this kingdom, your kingdom, is expanded and strengthened. Because we know that that is only going to happen by your grace and through your power, through the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son. And so we ask that this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.